back. Hey, Brett, how's it going this week? Good, Ange. How are you? Good. Well, that means it's another episode of Money in the Bank, the podcast where we talk about all things related to personal finance. And this is our 99th episode, which means you have about five more days to enter our contest. We will take entries until June 7th. 2019. 2019. In case case you're listening to this in 2025. Yeah, you're time traveling. Um, So we're giving away $100 for our 100th episode. All you have to do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts or we've been getting some complaints that, uh, like, nobody else has, like, review structure anymore. Like stupid, Google. Go- stupid Google Play and they're not having reviews anymore. So I've recently started posting to our YouTube channel again. And it's all old episodes. So that's not ideal. Um, but if you just want to subscribe over there and leave a comment, um, that will count as well. I want to yeah. make this easy for people. I don't want to make this difficult. So, um, you know, you can always just like text a friend about us and screenshot me that if that's easiest for you. Leave a review on Apple podcast or head on over to our YouTube channel, which is just money in the bank. And, you know, subscribe to us over there. Cool. So, uh, yeah, and we will announce the winner on our next episode, which I just want to give a you know another notice that it might be delayed a week. We are in the middle of a big cross-country move, and so just coordinating all of that is a little difficult. So, yeah, it'll be a nice juggling act, so we'll, we'll talk about it when it's all said and done. Yeah. Um, okay, well, you know what we're going to talk about today, Brett? Like I always do. <laughs> so, uh, first, your trivia question, which will give you a good hint to what we're talking about. What percentage of people in the U.S. on their 2016 tax return All right. <laughs> reported income for a rental property? So what I'm really getting at here is what percentage of people in the U.S. are landlords? But this was the best way to find that data. Okay, so if two people left the train station in 2016 and the trains are traveling at 25 miles an hour. No, just the question is what percentage of people in the U.S. are landlords? But I was just telling you how I got that data because I thought it was very creative. So creative. I'm so proud of you. Um, It still does not change my wild guess of like 28%. 28%. 7.1% of people in the U.S. are landlords. Really? Uh, people are always bragging about how they have investment properties. I can't believe I'm only talking to 7%. <laughs> well, I think like you attract what you are, right? Oh, yeah, man. I, I'm swinging in those investment <laughs> property circles. Um, just wheeling and dealing well, all the no, time. Well, no, this makes sense to me because how many, how many people do we know that don't even own their first home yet? Let uh, alone a rental Yeah, that's unit. true, I guess. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense. Um, that was actually higher than I thought, because I think you always hear, like, landlords are these big, scary people who are just out to, like, gouge you and ruin your life, right, as mm-hmm. renters. Because we, like, I do know there's a huge shift in more people are renting than ever before, right? Um, actually, for a lot of good reasons, because buying a home in a lot of big cities is super terrible. Um, so, anyways... You know, I think it's good to break that stereotype and think actually about one in 10 people are landlords. Uh, because keep in mind, some people are married filing, filing jointly. So, you know, for us, we both consider ourselves landlords, but we only file one tax return. Right. So you're, there you go. You're throwing off my data. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I always try to tell you where I get my numbers from. Um, but so on this episode, we actually want to talk about buying your first rental property. I did an Instagram survey recently and it seems like a lot of people are really interested in this topic and we've owned rental units since 2015 is when we bought our first one Mm -hmm. um so we've had we have four years of experience so not 
you know, I'm not sitting here saying I have 20 years of experience or whatever, but we've gone through it and we've been through this process. So I figured we'd talk about it and give you some advice. And uh, especially because the, the interest rate on getting mortgages right now is like still pretty low. Right. Um, right. There's a lot of people that are showing interest in this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, I think the number one thing to talk about, like Brett mentioned, the interest rates are still pretty low, but that means what he's talking about there is getting a mortgage. Correct. And for most people buying a rental property, you will need to get a mortgage. And the the difference between buying a place that you are going to live and buying a rental property is when you buy a place you're going to live, a lot of times there's first-time home buyer programs out there where maybe you can pay you know, 0% down in certain situations, or more commonly 5% down is a normal rate to get in at. But for rental properties, you will typically need to do 25% down. Right. There's a lot of extra rules around if you're not going to live in the home, or especially if you're not going to own the home for two years, and you're going to try and resell it. There's a lot of other, you know, penalties and stuff that are associated with that. Um, so just know that it's it's not quite the same process if you have bought your first home and you're going to go buy a rental property. You know, there are some slight differences um, in the financing. Yep. And I think another thing to mention with that is, so you're going to have to save some money, which we've done a lot of episodes talking about how to save money. And this is, you know, I think people sometimes ask us like, well, what are you saving all this money for anyways? Well, this might be something you're saving money for is to expand your investment portfolio and have a rental property. Um, So you're going to have to save some money for it. But another really important thing is to start small and grow um, because 25% can be a lot. So you don't want to go out and buy like a million dollar place for your first one. Um, And this was something that Brett and I really definitely did when we started dabbling in the, um, you know, rental market is we bought a condo that was smaller than a down payment for a lot of people and we (laughs) bought the place with cash um so we didn't have to get a mortgage because it was so small that literally people in big cities who are you know have a down payment that's a hundred thousand dollars or whatever would cringe because we paid so much less than that for our first place um but in a, in a market where we were still able to get, like, a pretty good return on it, like, compared to everything else in the area, right? So it's not like we bought, like, a super cheap place and we're only making $200 a month on the return, right? And so it all kind of, like, balanced out. Yeah. So, Brad, we, do you mind if I share the actual numbers? Yeah, I think that's people fine. Perspective? Okay. Yeah. So the first place we bought was $30,000. Um, and that, that, yeah, that's it, right? We for, were surprised, for a, too. Yeah, for a condo in a in a like a condominium complex that had about total of 24, I think 24 units in it. 24 units. Um, the unit that we bought was a two bedroom. It was about 850 square feet, I think. Um, so it was a good size two bedroom. It did not have laundry in the unit, but it had laundry in the building and it came with a storage locker as well as a carport. So um, when we did comps on this unit, we found that we could rent this out for $750. And Um, so, you know, by the time we factored expenses out, which we did have an HOA fee, which was about $150 a month on the HOA fee there. And then we saved for repairs and we baked in vacancy, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but we were able to, you know, kind of cover all of these things and still walk away making money every single month are, so one of the things I always look at is like a cash on cash return or a cap rate. And basically what that means is you take all of the income that you make 
and then you subtract out all of the expenses you have. So like I mentioned the HOA fee, we had a furnace go out that we had to replace. Uh, we, had, we put in new flooring because it was old shaggy blue carpet. Right. A um, couple plumbing issues while we were there over right. a couple years we had it. So for the, for the few years we owned it, we were typically getting about a 15% annual return on this, which is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's far better than what you can get, you know, in the stock market. Um, and we went through a lot with this unit. We went through repairs. We went through, um, you know, dealing with late rent and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, tenants moving in and out. You know, we had tenant turnover. Um, and so we learned a lot, but it was such a low cost unit and the rent price was so good that we were able to definitely still come out ahead. Um, and I think a lot of people might be listening to this, um, you know, more traditional landlords try to hit a 1% rule. So what that means is the purchase price of the place, so we'll say with $30,000, um, you wanna be able to rent that out for 1% a month. So $300 a month. Right. And we basically got like a 2% rule, right. um, over 2% rule without even trying. But I will also mention, you know, we had the HOA fee, which definitely impacted that calculation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times the 1% rule is not a one size fits all. I no, it's, it's very different because the expenses in every area are could be wildly different. And what you buy into could be wildly different, right? Because um, whether it's a newer unit where you're going to have, you know, more of your expenses are going to be like deferred, you know, five to 10 years or uh, right, whether you have to fix some things up in the first place, right? So you have more expenses up front, right? It's a very, yeah, it goes across the board and like, you know, it's, it's an average kind of a rule, but um, it's better to just like, there's not enough numbers to complicate things that you can't just like do them yourself like really quickly, right? right? You're talking about vacancy, you're talking about maintenance, uh, right? And you know, maintenance be very wildly, vacancy varies by where you are currently living. You can Google the vacancy number for your area. There's a there's tables for every city that tell you exactly what your vacancy rate is for where you live. Um, so that's how you can average that calculation, right? So there, you know, that and like two other numbers for like whether you have a mortgage or whether there's an HOA fee, right? That's really, you know, you can a very simple spreadsheet can put this stuff together for you. Yeah, so let's just dive into the numbers a little bit more here. So with the mortgage, you have PITI, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast. It's principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Your principal and interest is cut and dry, whatever your mortgage amount is. That's just what that's going to yep. be. Um, the taxes will typically go up because you are going to fall under the non-homestead category. Mm-hmm. So, typically, so you're not living there. So this is not one of those areas where you get semi-penalized. Right. right. So keep that in mind when you're building out your numbers. If it's currently being lived in and you're going to turn it into a rental, um, that number could go up. So that's one to keep in mind. Insurance will actually go up if you're not living at the unit as well. Um, having insurance on a rental property is more expensive than having insurance on your house. Right. But you also, I mean, that's kind of a double-edged sword because you don't need to insure any personal property because it's not your personal property. Correct. Unless, unless you have it like fully furnished or whatever. But um, if you have a single family home then your insurance is gonna be a bigger part of that. If you have a condo, then your insurance is gonna be way less because our insurance of the condo was nothing really because the association has an overall policy Correct. for insurance. We have we had a liability policy 
Um, and like like for fire and water damage or so, like some catas- catastrophic thing kind of happened, and then the tenants have um, their their personal property covered, right? So there's three people sharing the insurance there. And that's actually a really good point to make. Um, so in our lease, we actually said you have to have renter's insurance, have your personal property covered, and you also have to have liability insurance. Um, and that was recommended to us by our insurance agent because even though we had liability and our attorney, and our attorney um, because even though we had liability insurance on the property, it was by the tenants also having it. If somebody comes into their kitchen and slips and falls or whatever and, and breaks their leg, there's another layer of protection before it even comes to us. Right. Um, and it also protects the tenants because if they had a guest over that was not on the lease, there's a potential that our insurance wouldn't cover it anyways. And so that way they're not going to get sued by their friend for breaking their hip in their kitchen. Right. right. Um, and the, the expense for that is super minimal compared to what can really ruin your day from this experience is for somebody to get hurt doing something stupid and then a lawsuit comes after you because you have more money than the people that live there. Correct. Lawsuits all flow to the source of money uh, regardless of the situation, right? They're just going to come after wherever they can get something from. Right. So if, if you're not covered, then right and you have a bunch of money then they're gonna they're gonna target you and it's gonna be a bad day so for very very inexpensive you can get some like liability coverage or an umbrella policy if you have more than one unit or or covers like your unit and your house and your vehicle and all this stuff right um just to protect yourself for pretty inexpensive yeah so the next item i wanted to talk about is capex so um, capital expenditures is what I call it, but that's basically kind of any maintenance or like long-term repair you're going to need to make. So um, for the condo that we had, this was pretty low because it was like, okay, the furnace, the air conditioner, the you know kitchen sink, the you know normal inside stuff. For the duplex we own, it's more, it's much higher because we have a roof and we have two furnaces and we have a whole big yard that we have to maintain, right? So um, in this spreadsheet, I kind of map out, okay, we're going to have to replace the furnace, the roof, you know, whatever. And I amortize, you know, I just say, let's say the roof is going to last another 20 years. How much do I need to save per year to pay for this roof when it needs to be replaced? And then we put that in a savings account each and every month to save up. So when things happen, because things always happen. So um, like with the condo we own, for example, we were in Nicaragua one year and we get a phone call that the furnace goes out and it's the middle of winter. So we have to get it replaced quickly. Um, you know, luckily we always have the money on, on a weekend. So it's on like emergency fee so prices, super expensive. Um, but you know, luckily we set the money aside to do that. So we weren't like, Oh, this is a huge catastrophe that we're going to have to put on a credit card and it's going to cost us a bunch of money. Um, I think part of being a responsible landlord and helping to like fight the trend that landlords are evil is, is making sure you have the emergency funds set up to take care of your tenants because they're paying a good price to live in your unit and your job is to take care of that for them. Great. That's yeah, it's really your only responsibility is to not just like make it a crappy place for them to exist. Right. And you're right. If you go down the road of like, you're not going to take care of stuff, then you attract that type of person to live there as well. Right. And that's going to, that just compounds problems because the other major part of this whole endeavor is getting the right people in your tenant that you want to have either as long-term tenants or as tenants that are like low maintenance, they can take care of things themselves. They're very, you know, very easy to work with. They don't cause a lot of weird problems. They don't have weird financial problems that like they aren't paying rent and stuff like that, right? So if you lock in a golden tenant, you want to keep them as long as possible and your life, it, that's the whole 
The whole game of this process Correct. is getting good people. But Brett, I'm going to cut you off because we're going to talk about that in a little bit. No, and we need to finish going through the numbers here. Let me tell you so, how important this is. <laughs> um, and I, the other thing I want to mention with capital expenditure is making the repairs now, as Brett kind of alluded to, will save you in the future. Because, um, for example, I had a terrible landlord in college and our furnace also went out and it was like the thermostat. But instead of just replacing the thermostat, he was like, anytime it gets too cold in here, touch these two wires together and then separate them when it's like hot enough and it'll turn the furnace off. And so instead of having a thermostat that regulated this for us, we're over there like touching these wires together and turning it off. Well, that actually places a lot more strain on the furnace because we didn't know what we were doing or how often we should be putting them together and pulling them apart. And that's what the thermostat's job, right? So by literally not just like getting a $20 thermostat and fixing this, he let this go for like two weeks. Um, that furnace started having issues and eventually he had to replace the whole thing. So, I mean, he could have, it could have been a simple $20 fix, but he was. Well, based on how he took care of that issue, I'm sure he took care of the appliances really well too, right? Yeah. Probably the furnace filter had never been changed. Yeah. And that's why we had poop back up in our basement. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. Then the next one I want to talk about is, so beyond capital expenditures, that's kind of like the bigger things. There's also going to just be, um, you know, little things that come up here and there that you just want to keep a slush fund for. Like, you know, a screen ripped or, you know, just things that are regular wear and tear, um, you know, sinks, the, the faucet occasionally will need to be replaced because it starts leaking. Well, it's nobody's fault. You don't charge the tenant for that. You're not like, oh, you turned the sink on and off one too many times and now it's leaking. It's you bite the bullet, you buy a new faucet and you install it. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's some stuff like that. Uh, lawn and snow. If you have a plate, you know, the duplex we have has a driveway and it has, a big yard. We don't want to be responsible for maintaining it. I know some people write in their leases that it's the tenant responsibility. That can get a little bit dicey. Personally, we didn't want to take on that liability with snow of like, well, they don't clean it. And then somebody slips and falls in front of the duplex and who's going to pay for that, right? Right. Um, And certainly if you do set up that situation, it's like you, for whatever reason, decide that's the right choice. Do not reduce their rent. Create a separate contract with them where you are contracting and paying them outside of your normal lease and rental agreement to handle that situation. Because if they stop doing it and like, then then you just get into a really tough situation where they're like violating their lease and like that's probably not enforceable in the court. So you're not going to really be able to evict them because of that cause. Right. And it's just, it's just a, a bad situation to get into. So if you have the control of like your lease is set, you live here for this amount and you're going to work and, you know, shovel the driveway this amount of times during the winter and I'm going to pay you this much for it. Great. If they decide that they don't want to do that and they want to turn that contract off. Great. You stop paying them and you go with a, a full service that's going to do it professionally or whatever, or you do it yourself or whatever. Correct. Yeah. Good point, Brett. Yeah. Um, so then the next one that we've already alluded to is vacancy. Again, this is a rate that you can pull from online um, and just plug into your numbers. It's typically a percentage of your monthly income. I know um, in Michigan where we had some rentals, it was 7%. We've looked at buying rentals in Chicago. Um, some of the neighborhoods there, it's closer to like 4.5%. And so it can vary a lot, obviously, by state and city. We and, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit later, but ways to reduce vacancy, because even though the rate is 7% in Michigan, we've never seen our rate be that high. Right. Um, 
so we can talk about that a bit. Okay, so then basically you're going to look at all these numbers. You're going to add up your capital expenditure, your insurance, your interest, your taxes, your principal, paying for lawn and snow, any miscellaneous repair items. You can typically throw a percentage in there as well. Your vacancy. And then if you want a property manager or not, so if, if you have a property manager, they might charge you ten, about 10% of your monthly rent. Right. You can negotiate that a little bit, but the average is probably it falls around 10% or they'll normally take like one month's rent, something like that. Yeah. So you might have a property manager on there and then you want to add in a margin for cash flow. So you're going to have all these numbers. You're going to you're going to add up what you can rent it for. So in our instance, let's say we were able to rent for 750, we added up all these numbers and let's say we came to 500, we made $250 a month right. from that from that unit. Um, and we didn't have a property manager, right? So that would have been more expensive if we had that, we would have made less money. Um, so we made $250 for all the work that we did over there, which is actually a decent amount. So this is definitely not just a way to like get rich quick all the time, um, especially when you're starting small, especially if you only have one to two rental units, you're not gonna be like rolling in money from this, uh, but it's a good way to invest if you're interested in it. So I think that's a big point to make is you have to want to be a landlord. Right. Or and, not, or you hire a property manager, but then you make less money. Right. And what you get into, right, is it can vary as well. So we're talking about we have like a, we've had a condo, so one family living there. We had a duplex, so we have two people living there, right? But we're buying like one property each time. So our expenses are shared across the duplex. Uh, yeah, it's a bigger yard and you know, all that stuff, but it's more equivalent to a single family home than a condo. So, but if you have, let, let's say you have a building with four units or eight units in it, right? then you still only have to take care of like maybe like one big boiler that's controlling the whole facility and the roof is one big shared roof across everything and you still have one sidewalk to plow and one yard to mow right so the the larger you scale it over time the the more you can share the expenses the more profitable the stuff becomes um as long as all the units still bring in the same amount of money but yeah well and that's why i think a really um good way to get started though is to like the way we bought a condo in a a bigger building, we didn't own all the units. So we didn't have to come up with all this money to buy all 24 units. We could have never afforded that. We bought one and then we still got the benefits of sharing the expenses with the HOA. Um, you know, right. so like we had that HOA insurance and we you know, they took care of the lawn and the snow and the roof and all that good right. stuff. Right, and their, their fees were not unreasonable, right? Like we looked at the financial numbers for the year and sometimes they had other assessments as well. If you get into a condo situation, they can have like extra assessments outside of the HOA for like, they were like repaired the uh, the carports at one point because they were like 50 years old and they needed to be torn down and replaced, right? So that was outside of the regular HOA stuff, but... Um, yeah, so in that situation, there can there can be extra fees, but um, you know, yeah, it wasn't unreasonable if if they're charging you like three times what you think it would cost to like mow the lawn and plow the snow, then that's a bad situation to get into, and right. and or the board needs to be you know reevaluating that HOA cost because they shouldn't be just like siphoning money for people. Correct, but that's a different different yeah. situation. Um, so again, that's a good way to buy and. Uh, the duplex, we also really like that strategy because um, single family homes can be really difficult to make a good return on investment with. It's just, you have a lot more expenses. You only have one family living there. Depending on your area, the rents might not support it. Um, duplexes can really help offset that. And another thing I really like about duplexes is for a lot of our listeners, you know, uh, I've been looking at more demographics lately and we have a lot of listeners in their 20s and 30s. Um, you might not have bought your first home yet. You might still be saving up for your first home. A duplex can be a really good way to buy a home and then you rent out half. 
So instead of being responsible for all of your mortgage payment, you're getting some of that taken care of for you. And then of course you have to be the one to save up for all the expenses and repairs, but you know, you're getting that offset by, by somebody paying for half the place. Right. And I mean, you're, you're physically there, which can be a double-edged sword, but it's very positive, I think, for the for the owner because you there's no reason to use a property manager in that case, right? right. Like you're you're right there, you can handle anything that comes up. Um, that's that's like a major issue. Uh, you can evaluate the situation very quickly. Like even if you live across town, it may be like, and they're like, oh, the furnace doesn't work. Like you're just like, well, I gotta call somebody because I can't get over there right this second to you know go look at it myself to see if it's something super easy or or whatever. Um, so you're just kind of at the mercy of that situation. But if you're there, then it's great. Um, the only complaint that people have had in the past around that is maybe, you know, because you are physically there more often, the tenants living there may ask you more frequently about stuff or they may bring up more concerns more frequently. But that's all about your personality and how you react to those things. And, you know, they're like, oh, my, you know, my sink's backing up sometimes. And we're like, okay, well, it says in the lease here that you're responsible for drain issues. So fix it. Yeah. So Brad, that gets to a really good point. Now I just kind of want to run through and give some recommendations for people buying their first property. Um, my number one recommendation is have a written lease in place. Absolutely. So even if you are, let's say you buy a duplex and you know some people who want to rent out the other half and they're friends of friends and you're like, oh yeah, I'll just let them live there and they'll pay me some money. Um, that sounds great. But as soon as there's a problem, just get that protection. Um, leases don't have to be super complicated. I know where we lived in Michigan even, our township that we were a part of had leases on their website that we could download for free and use. Um, we did beef ours up and we had an attorney review it as well, which you don't have to do really. You can use the simple leases, but have something in place so that if they stop paying you, you have a course of action instead of being like, oh, well, they stopped paying me, but I have no documentation that shows how much they should be paying me or when they should be paying me. Um, that gets into a really bad situation. So have a lease, number one, I yep. think. Yep. And I mean, yeah, it's easy It's easy to find those. If you go on to any like investment property, you know, forums or websites or blogs or whatever, you could like throw a rock and hit a hundred stories of the you know there was these good intentions where i just loaned it out to my friend for like six months or whatever and like some weird catastrophic thing happened that nobody was planning on and it like ruined their friendship or whatever and then the person didn't pay and then they didn't have any recourse because they didn't sign any paperwork or whatever and so they're just like out ten thousand dollars or whatever right and just it's worth it for them to just like sign the piece of paper in the beginning for your liability to be covered and like there's no hard feelings up front right it's like not a big deal but it's like super beneficial to the person that owns the property to protect themselves because it happens more than it probably should to people that right are really good people really good tenants really good owners and just like it's just unfortunate situations right um so the second piece of advice i have is to accept rent payments online Yes, this is, I mean, we don't live in the Stone Ages anymore. Checks should be abolished in the United States. They are in Europe, so. It's a stupid system that shouldn't have existed since I've been born. And, right, everything should be handled digital payments from today onward, right? Yeah. It's so much easier for the user. You can set up auto pay, right? Like, just set it and forget it type models. It, like, really covers a lot of things. You're not chasing people down. Um, I mean, you can build light fees into, into your lease, right, that are, like quite high as a matter of fact and then you actually get a higher return on that stuff but 
once you start dealing with that, it becomes like a more of a problem. It's not even not. worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So ACH banks. ACH bank transfers are free to do. We also do Google Pay. Yeah, Google, Google Pay. Zelle. Google Pay, uh, you can't do Zelle. They don't do it for oh, corporations. Okay. So Google Pay is the only online free service that I have found currently as of right now in 2019 that will allow you to operate under your personal name. So if you're doing like a sole proprietorship, which is, or just nothing, because uh, you can just operate a business as a sole proprietorship for nothing for rentals. Um, like if you have like one or two properties, do it that way. And you can just put your name and they can send um, they can send the money directly through Google Pay to that email address. And then you can just have that route directly into your bank account automatically. So they, their bank account pays through Google Pay. It pays you and goes straight into your bank account. It's free for everybody throughout the entire process. A lot of the other online services that take rent and do other like management services and uh, you know property management tools and stuff, they'll take a fee of like 3%. And you can choose to have the tenant pay that fee, or you can pay that fee, or they'll split the fee. Um, right? It's all kind of digital services, but uh, you know, for for somebody that doesn't have more than one property, uh, Google Pay is a great uh, tool for that. Yeah, great. So, yep, set that up. It's totally worth it. Everybody loves it. It's super annoying when you have to write checks, so don't be that. Or nice. receive checks, or take yeah. checks to the bank, or yep. you scan the checks in the app, and then you have to wait four days for it to process. All right, yeah. so my next tip of advice to cut Brett Rant off again is um, buy turnkey for your first property. So this doesn't mean like buy the most updated place that has like granite countertops and white shaker cabinets. That's not what I mean. But I mean buy a place that you don't have to put serious work into. So sure, maybe if the carpet's a little dated, whatever. Like we ripped out the blue shade carpet when we bought a place. We bought another place that everything was clean and up like nice, but it wasn't updated. Um, those are good places to buy. You know, we didn't have tons of super expensive repairs, but don't buy the place that you pull up and you're like, oh, it definitely needs you know, new siding or a new roof or the furnace is bad. As a first time buyer, you're not going to have the reserves on hand to make all of these repairs. You're just going to be in the red from day one. It's going to be a super frustrating process for you. And it's going to make you hate being a landlord. Right. So completely agree. Like <laughs> nothing more. <I> yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I want to mention with that is typically for people's first property, I recommend buying like a true annual rental. Um, there's a lot of people who try to get into the seasonal vacation rental space, but it can be difficult if that's your first one and you haven't gotten into it before because vacancy will be a lot higher on those and pricing that in can be tricky. Right. The math, I mean, the math, even if you have regular investment or annual investment properties that are not vacation rentals, the math on vacation rentals is just a different formula. Right. So I just don't treat it the same way when you're just spiking up and down like crazy. Like right. your numbers have to be way higher when you are getting income to cover the cost for when you're not getting income. Right. And you have to know the seasonal patterns of that particular area you're buying into. So there's just a little bit more involved in that process. Yeah. Um, it, not to say that you shouldn't do it. I mean, a lot of people are very, very successful in that model, um, especially in like high tourism areas um, during the summers. Uh, we, we know some friends here that. Um, they bought like down in like the Disneyland area and right. they've been doing very well with their rental property and they have somebody else, I think managing it for them. With the, so they've made the math work, you know, they're very, very, very smart people. So, um, and they have some help that they're, they're working with like a family member that's been doing this for a long time. Yeah. So that's the key. That's they the, had an expert in the field who knew what they were doing, who helped get them into the right unit. Right. Um, and I think 
a lot of people, you know, I've seen a lot of people, especially like in Michigan, um, say, oh, I should buy a place like up in, you know, Traverse City on the water. And it's super seasonal there because you're going to have eight months of winter that like <laughs> nobody's going to want to stay in your place, right? So you have to make all of your money in four months. And it can be very difficult um, because what if we have a bad winter or what if it's like cold and rainy and people cancel? Like there's a lot of variability. It can be super tricky. So you want to make sure you really know what you're doing before you go down that road. And how are you marketing it? And where where are you getting eyeballs and attention? What are the scheduling process? So people like because they just go out to websites or Airbnb or like it's connected with like hotel property chains and stuff like that. And you have to have like a maid service that comes in every time there's because there's such high high turnover. And it's just, yeah, it's just a different process, but it's its own formula and uh just consider that separately but yeah not not the best approach for the it's not the simplest approach for people that are brand new to this, this correct um so kind of in relation to that my next point is to buy what you know um and and know the market that you're getting into very well so i think that's how brett and i were so successful i grew up a block away from the first condo we bought. I mean, it was literally basically in my childhood home backyard. And so I knew um, that that was a good area. And I, you know, I knew the type of tenant we could attract. I knew how to market that effectively, who we should be getting to live there. Um, And I knew what the rent prices could be because I had a ton of friends who were renting in that area. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a slam dunk for me. Um, The next place we bought was about a half a mile in the other direction. And again, it was a neighborhood that I had friends that lived in that neighborhood and I still knew people living in that neighborhood. And it was this was actually a really interesting situation because there was, we bought that duplex. There was another duplex that was maybe a mile and a half away and our real estate agent was like, just out of curiosity, why are you not even interested in this unit even though it's like 30% less than, than this duplex? And I was like, because that's a neighborhood that you don't wanna be in. And I only knew that because I had lived in that area for 20 years. And so I think it would be very easy for, you know, when we moved to Orlando, for example, if there was if there were two duplexes a mile away from each other and one was 30% less, I'd be like, oh, score, you know, somebody's just overlooking this gem. Um, But there's a reason, a lot of times there's a reason it's priced that way. Now, sometimes you find a diamond in the rough for sure, be on the lookout for that. Uh, But for me, I knew that I was like, rents will never be as high in this neighborhood as they are in this neighborhood. And that's just something I knew from knowing the market really well. And that's something that um, you have to do a lot of research for. Like, I don't know how to tell you that any better than you have to you know, buy what you know, buy in an area that you know well, and, and that'll save you a lot of headache. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just too hard to walk into a situation uh, unknown. You you can look at and talk to other realtors or other people familiar with the area or property managers in the area. If you're going to work with them long term, they may help you find a unit in the first place. But people are not all the same, right? Uh, most probably realtors and most probably property managers, I'm saying like, are not very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. You only want to work with professionals if you're going to get into this market. And a professional does not mean that they have an office somewhere. Uh, A professional is somebody that is like able to get back to you very effectively. Uh, They're able to articulate uh, what things are good and what things are bad and you understand uh, and then make you understand and learn through the process. um, Right. And, and have a lot of experience in the area and, um, and are pricing things effectively that you kind of agree with, right? Right. Or, or if they are pricing things effective, then they have, like, really good justifications for doing so. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of people that we've even met down here in Florida that were just like, 
I can't even believe you sell anything. Right. <laughs> like, we, we have no idea how you've sold any unit ever because your prices are, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars way overvalued. Correct. And that kind of gets to the next point on if you want to use a property manager a lot, property manager or not. And like Brett mentioned, there are some really good property managers out there that are totally worth their fees. There's also a lot of really bad property managers out there. So before you pay that, weigh the pros and cons. Honestly, for your first unit that you buy, if you follow our advice and you buy something in the area that you already live in or an area you know well, perhaps you feel that you don't need a property manager, especially for one unit. Now, if you expand and grow, you might want to add that in. So what I always recommend when we price our properties, we always, when we do the analysis, assuming that we will hire a property manager eventually, but until we do, that just returns an extra 10% into our pockets. Yeah. And you just have to understand, like, if you are going to work with them up front, if you're, you're just like, I'm not, I want to get into investment properties, but I don't want to have to do anything, you know, myself, you have to manage that person, right? Like, no matter what, you have to understand what their uh, tenant screening process is, like, you need to know, like, what their policy is for, like, rental income, and uh, when they're going to get the money, and when they're going to transfer the money to you, and what that looks like, and, right, you, you have to, you have to control their whole process as well. Uh, you don't have to tell them what their process is, but you have to pick the right person that has a process that you agree with and that they're just not like, yeah, whatever the first person that comes along, we're going to get them into the unit and then it's going to cause a ton of problems for you, but not my problem because I'm just the person that collects the money. Right. right? And and so with that, Brett, you mentioned um, tenant selection, so we can talk about that a little bit now. Finally, um, super important. Super important. Good tenants are worth keeping. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention with this is marketing. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, we had a very low vacancy rate and we always put our rentals on multiple different websites. So it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes, but we'll do like Trulia, Zillow, Realtor.com, Apartments.com, Craigslist, right? We try to cover all these bases. And, um, you know, we've had really good luck with Zillow in our area, but certain states, Um, or cities do better with hot pads or domu, right? Like it just Mm -hmm. really depends. Um, So again, this is something that most of these services are free to post on. So try it, see where you're getting your responses from. But like the first time we marketed a unit, we put it on literally every website we could think of. And then we, we found, oh, hey, Zillow works super well for our area. So the second time we had to market a unit, we were like, let's go the Zillow route. And we We've always been able to rent our units within a week of posting them, which is insane. That's super fast. And, you know, I had a friend who was doing rentals nearby and he was like, oh, like I've had this unit up for two months and I can't fill it. And I'm like, what's going on? Like we fill ours super quick, you know, like, and he wasn't using Zillow and he turned Zillow on. And sure enough, that place got rented like two weeks later after sitting on the market for two months. Right. So So. um, know your, you know, again, know your market, know where to market and... Um, know where you're going to get good tenants from. Right. So that's marketability. Tenant screening, though, is like when, now you've gotten a f- 25 phone calls, right? Right. The, uh, a lot of people will tell you that Craigslist is the free, cheap place where you're going to get a lot of feedback. You will get a lot of phone calls from people on Craigslist. Mm-hmm. You probably don't want 90% of the people that call you from Craigslist. However, we also had some really good tenants from Craigslist. Yes. So it's it you there are diamonds out there. There are regular people that use Craigslist, but a lot of the people that like 
would never pass your tenant screening are float down to Craigslist and don't use other Correct. tools. And so I don't when, know why, because all the other two, like they could use Zillow, they could use apartments, but like. So something for us that we've noticed is whenever we screen tenants, we meet them at the unit to do a walkthrough. So we meet them in person and we just talk to them like, normal people we just feel them out and honestly like we're not saying we don't do gut checks it's not that's not what we do um but you know that that's important to just like learn about them learn what they do for a living right and then you have them fill out an application and then you have them send in their application fee uh, because you have to do an actual background check so we there's a lot of websites out there we've used different ones we haven't found one that we love um but if you if you google tenant background there's a ton of them out there and that's super important for us. So, you know, we charge a $25 application fee in Michigan. In Orlando, your application fee is like $85,000 approximately. Yeah. Um, like we know it only costs like $25, $25 to use these. Because we just do a we do a straight pass through of whatever the application fee costs us to run. Right. That's what we charge for the application right. fee. Yeah. The one for Orlando here was like... It was like $200 per person or something yeah, for an application ridiculous. fee. I'm like, yeah, okay. But yeah, so we, we do this... Um, you know, we do this background check online, it pulls their credit score, their, you know, criminal background check, it verifies their income, all these good things. So for income, we do make sure that the income is at least, you know, again, we, we give this advice on the podcast. So one of our requirements is that it it's 25 to 30% of the rent would be, you know, or 25 to 30% of their income is what the rent is. So if somebody applies and they're only making, you know, $100 and our place is on the market for $500, they're not going to pass that criteria for us because we want to make sure they can afford the place. Um, We look at credit score. We we don't, you know, we've rented to people with varying credit scores. So we have a credit score requirement, but if if it's bad and we see like, oh, well, this... It's bad because of an unpaid bill five years ago. We might not hold that against them because we're like, well, since then they haven't had any other delinquent marks. So right. they're they're obviously working on improving their credit score. Um, so we do have a threshold, but we're, we also have a little bit of a gray area if we can understand what happened um, by looking at the report. And then I think the criminal background check is pretty self-explanatory. Um, you know, obviously if somebody has had a ton of evictions or something, we're probably not going to rent to them because it shows that they're not responsible. Right. And so we also, in addition to like the background check process, we do, we front load a lot of our, in Michigan, we use security deposits. Michigan, uh, you know, landlord rules say that you can do 1.5 times the amount of your um, monthly rent as a security deposit also. So like if you charge $1,000 monthly rent, you can do $1,500 as your security deposit maximum. Uh, we usually don't go to that 1.5%. Uh, we keep it pretty high though still. And that's also a huge deterrent for people that are just like not able to bring enough money up front to get into the unit. Um, right, that solves a lot of your long-term financial problems. Well, the bigger thing that it solves there is if you have renters that do a lot of damage. So when I was younger, we had rental properties and they did a ton of damage to the unit and we did not have a good security deposit in place at all. And so we had to fix all that damage out of our own pocket where if you have that security deposit and then damage does happen, you have money to help you fix that. Um, And then if you have good tenants, they get their money back. No no harm done. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, definitely that's a good thing to do. And really, so the only other thing is you can't discriminate against anybody based on like the whole. There's a there's a lot of rules out there. There's landlord tenant you know rules and checklists and all kinds of paperwork. 
Uh, it's very simple. You can just read through it really quickly, but it's like, here are the things you can and can't do. Here are the things you can and cannot charge. Here are the fees that you can charge and the things you can't charge it. Uh, here's what you can charge rent for and not charge rent for. Right. So it's people very, can very look itemized. that up out there. Yeah. So. Um, and the other thing I want to mention there is to do a scoring system. So when we have a lot of interest in a property, we kind of pop it all into a spreadsheet. We say, okay, we're going to assign points based off of your income level, your credit score, your um, background check, all of that. And it's just literally whoever gets the highest points wins. Right. They get the unit and they're the first choice. If they decline it, it goes to the second person on the list. And that is a really good way to make sure you're following all of the anti-discriminatory rules and just having like a system in place to right. filter people. Because if you can prove like this is our system, this is what we use, here's the, here's the scorecard that we use, everybody goes through this process, then right, nobody's going to, no judge or anything that... Uh, if anybody like tries to file a discriminatory case against you for whatever reason, even if it's BS, uh, they're just going to throw it out immediately, right? Okay, so we've been blabbering on a ton. We got to wrap this episode up, but I have a few more points to make, so I'm just going to run through them really quick. And if people have questions, we can do a follow-up episode. So um, the, the last few things I wanted to mention is to make sure before you start renting, you know your state laws on eviction and tenant rights. This is something that doing this reading ahead of time will just help you in the future. If there are any disputes or issues that arise, it's just very good to good to do that. Um you know, make sure you keep an emergency fund separate of your personal emergency fund for the rental unit. So Brett mentioned you can set this up as a sole proprietorship. We still have a separate bank account for our rental properties so that everything is kind of separate and all of that money stays over there to pay everything out. And then when we, you know, we just pay ourselves an income from that pool of money. Um, the last couple things I wanted to mention are when you set that lease up and you have that written lease, make sure you set rules and stick to them. Um, a big area here is late fees. It can be really easy to say, oh, we feel bad. We're not going to charge you late fees. But then what you notice is people will abuse that. If you give them an inch, they will take a mile and they will all of a sudden start being late every single month. So while it's really hard, I know it's always hard for me personally to charge these late fees and stick to them. Um, if you do that, typically um, we've had all of our other, all of our tenants in the past have just gone on to auto pay so that we never have to worry about this again. So right. fee, fee structuring, whether it's late fees or upfront fees or whatever, it's also a good marketing tool for like, if you want to waive some fees, like a pet fee, because like you met their dog and their dog's amazing, like then you can just waive the pet fee, right? Um, and then it makes them feel like they're really getting a deal, um, right? So you're removing some of the expenses that they would have had to otherwise pay. So it creates a, a bonded relationship. If you do identify that these people are like really good tenants and you really want to have them in your unit. Right. So if you fill out the scorecard and these people get a 20 out of 20 and they have a dog, and that's like the, the, you know, the only negative or whatever against them. And then you go to them and you're like, well, they got the 20 out of 20. And they're like between me and one other place. And you say, hey, uh, we talked about it and we're going to waive the pet fee for you because we met your dog and they're just the cutest little guy ever. Um, then that, a lot of times that gives them incentive to choose your place. So you get the 20 out of 20 tenant and you get to like see a dog every time you go over there to do repairs. So right. Because again, for whatever that fee costs up front, like if, even if it's 100 bucks, the cost of getting good tenants into your unit is worth everything. Yeah, and so um, that's actually another thing a lot of people ask, should I let pets in my unit, should I not? Obviously pets can cause a lot of damage. We kind of mitigate that by saying we have to meet uh, whatever pet's gonna live there before they move in. And that's really helped us because, you know, if you meet a dog that's like, runs up to you and bites you, then you know that that's a liability issue. Or if you meet a dog that is, you know, um, you know, not potty trained or it's a puppy, you know, that they, they might cause more damage than an older dog who is clearly well, very well behaved and well trained. 
Mm-hmm. So meet the dog and see. I know for us, our insurance does not allow us to have certain breeds. That's not us. That's our insurance. So we do have to pass that restriction along. Yeah, as well. Michigan, you need to change that too because that's just total BS. <laughs> Um, And then the last thing I wanted to mention is to just be kind, be a good person, be a good landlord, do the right thing, do right by your tenants. And by building, by just being a good person and doing the right thing, it it really does pay it forward. Your tenants see that, they notice that, they're good to you, they're good to the property, and it's just a really good relationship. And I think building that good relationship is 100% the most important thing because then they're a good tenant, you're a good landlord, and everybody's happy. So, all right, we droned on. This was probably our longest episode ever. Clearly, we can talk about this stuff forever. So if you're interested, if there's, you know, there's stuff on this list that we could have talked about, definitely a lot more. Um, So let us know if you want us to do another episode about this. Cool. Thanks, guys. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Money in the Bank. Make sure to subscribe to us on the iTunes or Stitcher app so that you get weekly alerts every time we post a podcast. Or if you want, you can visit my website, moneyinthebankpodcast.com. And if you want to reach out with any questions or further comments, please email me at angie at moneyinthebankpodcast.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Money in the Bank.